Hello and welcome to the Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital, a crypto asset manager pursuing fund-to-fund strategies. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management space. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Peter Marshall, founder and CEO of Walden Bridge Capital, a long-biased, fundamental research-driven crypto hedge fund with a track record dating back to 2017. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Senior Studio, where I am thrilled to have our guest today, Peter Marshall of Walden Bridge Capital. Peter is one of the smartest investors that we've encountered from our standpoint at at Senius and not only is incredibly intelligent on the space, but is also very thoughtful and and sharp on how to build a professional institutional firm in this complex, nascent and wild asset class. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce everyone to Peter Marshall. Peter, how's your day going? Great. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to jump into it. So the the first thing I as I was reflecting on our relationship and something that I don't know anything about is the origin of the name of your firm Waldenbridge. Where does it come from and and would love to just hear the the history of it. Sure. I grew up in a small town north of Chicago called Lake Forest. There was actually just a bridge that I used to run across called Walden Bridge. Everyone back in 2017 was starting crypto funds with names that were trying to take advantage of the hype around crypto and blockchain. From the beginning, I thought the opportunity was to build an institutional grade investment management firm in the space where family offices and eventually institutions would feel comfortable allocating. So I thought it made more sense to go with a more traditional name for a hedge fund. So Wall & Bridge sounded like something that could exist in any traditional market. We just had to go. Yeah, I love that. That's cool. I, I didn't know you were a runner. I do know that you are an excellent golfer, though. So I've have definitely heard through the grapevine and, and, and from some of our mutual connections that you're an awesome golfer. So would love to... To hear a little bit more about that and maybe how some principles you've garnered from being on the course have, have helped inform your investing acumen. But before we get into any of that, would love to just take a step back and, and dive into your experience, your background, and how you ultimately fell down the proverbial crypto rabbit hole. Well, I went to Vanderbilt where we had the pleasure of meeting. And I came across Bitcoin when I was studying economics back in 2013. I quickly realized that Bitcoin was a breakthrough in finance and computer science. And I thought that the idea of peer-to-peer value transfer would inevitably be applied much more broadly than just Bitcoin. I started investing 
in early 2014 and have been down the crypto, the crypto rabbit hole ever since. When I was in undergrad, I interned two summers at Ziegler Capital Management. It's an institutional investment firm in Chicago focused on primarily long-only fixed income and equity products. It was there that I learned how the institutional investment business operated. And given that I was coming across crypto at the same time, I saw an opportunity to take that existing business model and apply it into crypto. So I graduated from Vanderbilt in 2014. I then went and worked full-time at Ziegler Capital Management. At the end of the year, I actually left to try to start a crypto fund. This was late 2014. It was very early. There were not many service providers in the space. Not many people were comfortable with the idea of investing at that time. It just was a little too early for me to get it going. So I went and worked as a financial analyst at CBRE, working on a variety of commercial real estate deals, but the whole time investing my personal account into crypto, focused primarily on the early altcoin space. I then in 2016 did an online program through the MIT Media Lab that was focused on financial technology. It was there that I built the business plan for Walden Bridge and really fleshed out the idea of a crypto hedge fund. Between 2014 and 2017, I had fortunately made enough investing via my personal account to, to quit my job and then launch Walden Bridge. We raised money from a group of high net worth individuals and one family office and launched our fund in May of 2017. And I've been focused on running that ever since. Amazing. And it's it's cool to see the story of how you went from discovery of Bitcoin all the way to having the conviction, even as a, a young kid at a school to to run in a firm, but not just you know, not just very aggressively trading, but also wanting to build a, a business around it and not just an amateurish business. You wanted to do it professionally and from an institutional perspective early on. And I'm curious what that process was like back in 2017, in, in the early days when, as you alluded to that, there were no service providers and custody wasn't a sure thing and exchanges were risky. How, how were you thinking about both the building out of the firm and trying to do so in a in, in a very professional manner with also thinking through trying to launch a investment strategy? Luckily, I learned the institutional investment business when I was in undergrad. So it was actually the first real business I came across and saw how all the different pieces fit together and just saw an opportunity to fully replicate it. So, you know, the structuring of a fund, specifically an open-ended fund is something that's been done for quite some time. The service providers that help with that structure, you know, the fund admin, tax, auditor, compliance. Luckily, a lot of those firms have existed for a while in traditional markets. So 
we just thought about, okay, who are the first movers in the new crypto asset space? Luckily, we were able to find them. And over the last several years, we've built very good relationships with a handful of our service providers who have been extremely helpful with the growth and success of our business. At the same time, I was running my own money in essentially a net long altcoin focused way. So from 2014 to 2017, I was able to flesh out the strategy for our hedge fund by trading my own money. And I learned a lot over those years. And so I was able to take what I learned at Ziegler Capital Management and what I learned from trading my personal account in the space and combine the two to launch Walden Bridge and to launch our hedge fund strategy. So what were some of those early investment strategies you had then? Was it trying to find dislocations of value and price? Were you applying traditional fundamental analysis to these tokens? Were you focused just on L1s and what had the best risk return high ceiling? How did you craft that strategy and does that strategy still influence how you think about the space today? Well, back in 2014, crypto was extremely speculative. Many would argue that today it's still quite speculative, but I can tell you back then it was the, the true wild west. The opportunity I saw then had a lot to do with narrative. You know, Bitcoin had emerged, but there were all these other coins that were coming out claiming to be you know, Bitcoin competitors. Then you had Ethereum launch. Then you had a handful of you know, early coins that were talking about being the Ethereum of this or the Ethereum of that. So there were a lot of narrative trading opportunities. But the way I looked at it was that if you could identify coins that had low circulating supplies and that were not traded on any of the major exchanges, but were likely to get listed on them, there was a huge opportunity to buy them up, say, on a you know, early offshore exchange or some of the less known altcoin focus exchanges at the time and wait for a bigger exchange to list them and for the narrative to really pick up around those coins. And a lot of times you saw explosions in value. There were a lot of 20, 50, 100 X between 2014 and 2017. And luckily I was able to capture a few of those. What's your thinking now on having managed a a fund now for over five years or around five years, um, between cryptos, price movements from a, a narrative perspective versus being now fundamentally driven by these projects creating real value. Do you think narrative and reflexivity still count as the two most important factors when, when moving the price needle? Or is it more so the fundamentals behind the token? Fundamentals are increasingly becoming more important, especially in a world where Interest rates are now at a point where bonds are starting to look attractive. It's hard to invest 
into things that you don't have any revenues that are purely narrative based. So I definitely think fundamentals are increasingly more important. And you know, now with DeFi protocols having different kinds of revenues and transaction fees on different platforms flowing to, for example, stakers or you know, people that own a coin associated with a DAO. That is becoming more and more important, being able to model some kind of hybrid discounted cash flow or you know, having strong value accrual mechanisms for a token. Those things are only going to become more and more important. At the same time, human psychology has a big impact on markets. And with crypto, it's still not well understood by the vast majority of global investors. And so you can see cycles of pessimism and optimism come and go and still have fairly significant impact on price. So I think narrative will continue to be an element, especially as new sectors emerge in crypto and there are new technological breakthroughs in the space. But I believe fundamentals and having strong value accrual mechanisms are going to be a major focus in the coming years for any investor in the space. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think there is significant value for those who've been in the asset class who, for, for a number of years who understand some of the reflexivities and idiosyncrasies of, uh, of this asset class who can then take those and also do fundamental analysis and then arrive at a more comprehensive investment decision. So I, I think you guys are well positioned and your experience lends itself very well to continuing to perform over the long term. Taking a step back and going back to the, the Waldenbridge journey, I, I know that you guys experimented with building out a, a high-frequency trading operation. Would love to just hear how that unfolded and the lessons learned from exploring building that trading strategy. After 2017, we decided that we wanted to take advantage of some of the opportunities that existed in the ARB and quantitative trading space. Luckily, from May of 2017 till December of 2017, we had a very strong run. And so our firm was in a place to reinvest and try to take advantage of some other opportunities. We hired a high-frequency trader from Optiver. We hired another trader who was on the equity volatility trading desk at Susquehanna Group. And then we hired a third trader who was at Gelber Group in Chicago. And we built a variety of strategies across pure arbitrage, triangular arbitrage, market making and market taking. I had set up one of the first accounts at one of the leading altcoin focused exchanges back in 2014. And so luckily I'd gotten to know some of the guys at that exchange. 
when we started doing extremely high volumes, they came to us and, you know, offered to give us an in-kind loan if we could meet certain volume thresholds. And so by getting that in-kind loan, it allowed us to create a, a market neutral strategy. This was a time when there was a lot of ARB across exchange in altcoins and, you know, back in late 2018, early 2019, the big high frequency firms hadn't really delved into crypto. You know, some, some were there, but like the vast majority were still just kind of researching and, and waiting to jump in. So by getting this in-kind loan, as long as we didn't deviate too much from the actual portfolio, we didn't have necessarily any dollar risk. And so what we did was we built a targeting system to take advantage of ARB or market making or market taking opportunities, but to always try to get back to that target portfolio to, to, to stay market neutral. We tested these strategies in late 2018. They did well. We then set up a separate fund, uh, raised money from some of our existing investors, raised money from some other investors, and and launched a separate market-neutral high-frequency fund in 2019. We saw a lot of success early on. Fortunately, one of my partners is a cloud networking specialist and figured out how to get really close to the major exchanges within AWS. The one That's one unique thing about crypto. A lot of these exchanges utilize AWS versus you know, traditional data centers. I, I do think that that has changed a little bit since 2019, but at the time we were really fast. So while we were able to take advantage of a lot of altcoin ARBs, Cross exchange are also pretty competitive in Bitcoin, USD, on Coinbase, for example. Towards the end of the year, the big high frequency firms started to move in pretty aggressively. We started scratching on a lot of trades. And while our pricing was good, it started to become clear that the pricing of some of these other trading firms was better. And on top of it, their systems were faster. So rather than continuing to reinvest and hire more developers, we decided just to shut it down and refocus entirely on our main hedge fund that we had launched in May of 2017. I've been a long-term investor in the space, and I believe that over the next several years, a net long strategy focused on altcoins will have, a very, will have good returns and has an attractive risk-reward profile. Playing in the HFT game is very competitive, and it's a, it's a very different way to approach investing and trading. So, yeah, and just focus entirely on our main fund, and that's what we've been doing ever since. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and I'm sure one where you learned a ton about trading infrastructure within the space that probably helps inform some of your decisions now in terms of, again, where those complexities that are novel to this asset class that you have to be in the weeds daily, understanding it in order to 
to operate effectively. So while it didn't work out, I'm sure experimenting with HFT was a, a net positive for Walden Bridge because then you guys had an exceptional 2020 and 2021. You guys were named on the top, the top performing fund over a multi-year period by Hedge Week. Walk me through what happened in 2020 and, and 2021 and then the decision that you, you ultimately made in 2021 for your LPs. With our main fund, we've always been net long. And so we stayed net long through the 2018 bear market, through the consolidation of 2019, and then through the sharp drawdown that we saw around COVID in early 2020. So once the bear market ended and things started to pick up, like we were, we were well positioned. You know, we had spent a lot of time researching emerging opportunities and we had positioned the portfolio in a way that would benefit from a bull market reemerging. And so when that happened in 2021, we were ready. And so one of the first things that we took advantage of was DeFi. Back in 2017, we had made an investment in MakerDAO. And so I'd been following the DeFi space and its evolution very closely. So when DeFi summer exploded in 2020, we were right there and ready to jump on those opportunities. From there, going into 2021, we thought that gaming and the idea of the metaverse would become the next major trend. We didn't think things would get as crazy as, for example, Facebook changing its name to Meta and the idea of Metaverse becoming one of the biggest hyped new things in the world. But, you know, again, we were right there and we were able to position the portfolio in a way to take advantage of that narrative and some of the specific opportunities that came in the gaming and play to earn space. Got it. Super cool. Yeah. Well, you, you guys have clearly taken this strategy and, and have proven yourself to be early identifiers of trends and tokens and projects that represent where that subsector or that project is heading. And I think that's been impressive to see you do that repeatedly transitioning a little bit uh to to your investment strategy and approach and how you think about conducting research and really analyzing these protocols and projects and then how you assemble a portfolio how how are you conducting that research what are you looking for what is traditional analysis versus what's maybe crypto native analysis. And then from there, how do you think about constructing a portfolio? Is it trying to canvas the world via a different, all the different layer ones? Or are you looking for the highest upside return potential versus the risk from a potential project? When looking at a potential investment, there are three main things that we consider. We look at general trends, network effects, and then token economics. So in terms of general trends, 
why is this sector important? What is key to the next evolution of crypto? Just trying to think holistically about like where the space is going and why. Also factoring in macro conditions, because as we've seen, the effect of how macro markets trade has a significant impact on crypto. From there, we'll look at network effects. So we'll, you know, we'll compile a list of coins that we think are interesting based on that first kind of high level view. And then we'll see, okay, what is being used? If a project, you know, or a specific blockchain is seeing a lot of usage, there's a good chance there's value there. And so we'll really dig into, you know, what are the particulars of that usage? Who's using it? Why are they using it? Is the growth of that usage increasing? If all those things check out and look good, then we'll start digging into the token economics. So if the coin has you know, several demand drivers, for example, say it's used for governance, it's used to stake and help secure the network, it's used to pay transaction fees, and or it's used for a couple other different use cases, you know, there, there's demand for that asset. If people want to use that project and, and engage in those activities, and then if you look at the supply curve, you know it could be inflationary, could be disinflationary, could be deflationary. If there's a situation where a coin has a set supply or a, a very low inflation schedule and has a variety of demand drivers that seem strong, and we see demand increasing, we can start to model out. You know what value accrual could look like based on you know, conservative growth assumptions or more aggressive growth assumptions, and from there can get an idea of how it should be valued. So those are some of the key things that we analyze in terms of constructing a portfolio. The way that we like to do it is essentially a barbell approach, where at this point. We think there are clear winners that have started to emerge and that value will continue to accrue to these coins. We consider these blue chips. So the more liquid, higher market cap coins that are seeing a lot of usage and that have strong network effects, have strong tooling, have strong communities, have a lot of partnerships have good you know, applications that are actually delivering value. Then we will allocate a smaller portion of the portfolio to what we consider deep altcoins. So these are emerging opportunities. It could be a coin in a sector that we think will really grow in prominence. It could be something that is starting to see a lot of usage, but you know, given how illiquid it is and how far down the market cap chart it is, maybe not a lot of market participants have taken notice of it yet. So really trying to identify those emerging opportunities, whether it's sector or pure usage, 
we'd like to allocate a smaller portion of the portfolio to those and create essentially baskets. Because if you know one of those hits, it could be a you know 10x, 20x, or or even more. And one day potentially one of the assets could become what we consider a blue chip. So it's essentially barbell where the bulk is in our high conviction blue chip crypto assets, and then a smaller portion is in these emerging deep altcoin opportunities. Love the overview. And I think the the barbell approach makes a lot of sense, especially as you look at this asset class, there's definitely been a few names, mainly on the DeFi side, zooming out of from the, the L1s that have proven themselves as reliable. They're trusted, they're audited, they have good functionality in, in the UX where they've taken it on the chin as a result of the entire market getting crushed, but they're still the blue chips, the, the most recommended and, and well-capitalized projects out there. So the, the risk return there certainly makes a lot of sense. I want to double click a little bit on the other side of the barbell where you're looking for trends and hints that these specific sectors or areas of focus represent and maybe an underseen opportunity. As you looked, we're just getting started in 2023, but over the next few years, what are some areas that you think have fertile soil and are demonstrating green shoots that these are sectors to keep an eye on? There are three areas that we're quite interested in right now. On-chain derivatives trading. So decentralized perp exchanges are starting to look very interesting, as are decentralized options exchanges. In the wake of FTX and all of the blowups we saw last year, we believe that more and more usage of these decentralized derivative exchanges will be the result. Secondly, L0 opportunities. So Ethereum has, in our minds, really emerged as the dominant L1 smart contracts platform. And that dominance will likely increase as L2s really develop. Going forward, this space needs interoperability and it needs customizability. So while Ethereum is great for a lot of different applications, there are some that need different parameters. They may want their own validators. They may need you know, very high throughput and are okay with more centralization. There are others that might need even more decentralization. So we think that an L0 opportunity where you can easily interoperate and send messages and value across different networks will be really valuable. And in conjunction with that, the ability to customize your own chain and plug into that interoperability. Lastly, the third area you're interested in is gaming and NFTs. Obviously, 2020, obviously 2021 was the year that gaming and NFTs exploded and 2022 was the year that they came down to earth. I think through the carnage, there will be some gems and that 
more and more unique assets will move on chain. So we're very focused on identifying infrastructure opportunities in that area and also inevitably a game that emerges as the dominant Fortnite-style crypto game. Those are the areas that we're quite interested in right now. It'll be exciting for all these AAA games that are being built and that typically take multiple years to to come to fruition. Once the first big game hits with blockchain and NFT functionality baked into it, we're going to see a proliferation of it because it'll almost become table stakes. So I don't know what that first game that will capture the the attention of our global audience, but it, it's definitely a sector that people are very excited about and has immense potential. We just don't know how it's all going to unfold. I, I love it. I wanted to talk about instead of, you know, how you assess investment opportunities, I wanted to giving a nod to, to 2022 and the drama that unfolded from the repeated debacles. How do you think about risk, right? You've been, you've been at it for a while and there are a number of different risks in crypto. There's operational risk, there's counterparty risk, there's smart contract risk, there's exchange risk. Um, how, how do you account for all of that and how do you try and mitigate all risk vectors without losing all edge? There are a lot of risks in crypto. Most people thought it was just the market, but 2022 showed that counterparty risk is also quite significant. From the beginning, we've been very focused on being in business with people that are focused on doing things the right way and that view this opportunity as very long-term. So we've always tried our best to identify good actors in the space that have built strong businesses that want to do well, but aren't looking just to make a quick buck. Because there's a lot of people that are in crypto trying to make a lot of money as fast as they possibly can. Fortunately, we've had very good service providers from the beginning. Given our strategy, we don't have to take a lot of, for example, exchange risk. For the most part, we're looking to buy and hold over multi-year periods. So being able to buy something and lock it in cold storage helped us, for example, avoid the FTX debacle entirely. Going forward, there's going to realistically be more blowups. It's just the nature of, of being in any market. But we just focus on you know, identifying the best service providers and counterparties in space who are trying to build for the long term and who have you know, good people working for their businesses. We like to develop good relationships and you know, ideally benefit in everyone who's in our ecosystem. So we just try to stay vigilant and really think about the long term and keeping our eye focused on the big opportunity that I think comes over building something 
over 10, 20, 50 years. Absolutely. What to that end and, and building off the risk question. So something that's outside of our hands, but is obviously top of mind for everyone is the heavy hand of regulators and governments who potentially may not fully grasp or may may view crypto antagonistically and may lump all of the bad actors of 2022 in with the overall crypto ethos which those those actors were actually acting in the opposite of if that makes sense what are your thoughts on forthcoming regulation and just policies that may interfere or alter the current path of how business is done on the crypto investing landscape? Well, on the one hand, I think regulation will make larger investors, for example, institutions, pension funds, those who control hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, much more comfortable with crypto. As we've seen, lack of regulation has clearly created issues for the space. So I think regulating the exchanges is a good starting point. I also think there's going to be stablecoin regulation because the idea of having a dollar-backed stablecoin will be beneficial to a lot of, for example, U.S. banks. The idea of being able to take dollars you know, then issue a, a dollar token on exchange and invest the dollar sitting in the bank account into, for example, to your treasury bonds, like you can earn a nice yield off that. So I think the stable coin business looks very attractive for a lot of traditional institutions. So I think you'll see regulation come around the exchanges and come around stable coins that will be good. On the other hand, with DeFi, and with the idea of decentralized validation that exists with, within public blockchains, there could be some issues around applying existing KYC AML policies. If you took you know, just a, a broad approach and said like you have to have KYC AML for every transaction, whether that's you know, lending and borrowing, via DeFi app or whether that's validating a transaction on a L1, that creates some issues because the nature of an open source permissionless blockchain and the associated applications is that anyone can use it at any time, anywhere in the world. So I think that's where there's going to be some confusion. I think one way to achieve a middle ground would be having on-chain identity and having things set up where, for example, if you're in the U.S. and want to use a leading DAX, like you have to prove that you're a U.S. citizen or that you're not based in the U.S. I think there needs to be some element of on-chain identity and you know, know your customer, because otherwise, I don't see these governments ever supporting the evolution of of, of that space. Like, the, 
they want to make sure that there aren't malicious or illicit transactions being done. So there needs to be some element of KYC AML baked in. It's not clear how that'll work, but I think there is a middle ground that could could be achieved. Yeah, and I think we've seen a number of companies rocket to unicorn status on the basis of being the provider that does that compliance, that does that KYC, that does try to maximize the likelihood that crypto actors or, or activity on chain is being done from good actors and not necessarily from OFAC sanctioned or whatever it may be, like like Chainalysis being one the one that jumps to mind. And I think that's obviously an area in which for these institutions to participate that they need to go through something like MetaMask Institutional or Vay's new institutionally focused product that is designed explicitly for their needs. So I, I agree, and I think we'll find a middle ground on on a lot of this. And I think from a U.S. perspective, it would be foolish to relinquish our position as the one of the leaders of this innovation of blockchain tech. And so I think there are enough people in Congress and talking to Congress who have to the U.S. ethos of entrepreneurship and innovation that while regulation may come, it may not be as suffocating as some may fear. Actually, I think, as you said, we'll find a, a nice middle ground. I wanted to quickly in, in, in like two minutes here discuss your philosophy when building a team and how you're building Walden Bridge into an asset management firm built for the built for the future. How do you think about building an organization? There are two elements when I look at Walden Bridge. There is the operational piece of the business, and then there's the actual investing. On the operations side, we like to hire pros. So just look to find people with the best operational experience from a strong traditional finance firm who have proven track records. On top of that, like we really focus on who they are as people and if they're a good fit for organization. We're very fortunate to have two individuals that have extensive backgrounds across investment operations who are doing a tremendous job. On the investment side, we like to find people that have personal experience investing in crypto. If you haven't been in the space over the last several years, it's it's difficult to understand the evolution and also where things are going. I believe investing money yourself, watching that, you know, making trades is vital. So we focus on hiring people that have actual crypto experience, but also ideally have some experience in a traditional market so that they can see, you know, how different trading opportunities look, how different investment opportunities look, and can kind of combine their experience with traditional markets 
and then their own crypto investing. Ever since the beginning, we wanted to build the strongest team possible. And today we just have a great group of individuals who every day make the firm, you know, a better place. So awesome. I'm, I'm very happy. Awesome. Well, would like to wrap up here with two questions that I am very interested in hearing your take on. So the first of which is what is your most contrarian, hot, spicy take in crypto specifically? The L1 wars are over. I think that it's going to be extremely difficult to displace Ethereum going forward. And in conjunction with that, I think that a lot of the applications that have seen a lot of usage over the last couple of years will increasingly become more dominant. So I think a lot of the winners are already out there and will only become stronger going forward. Got it. Definitely spicy. Applying the same question, but outside of crypto, what's your spiciest, hottest, most contrarian take outside of crypto? Gene editing will become as big of a focus as AI in 2022. We've seen an explosion of interest in AI over the last few months. I think in the coming months, a lot of people are going to start talking about gene editing and the ability to cure diseases that previously were uncurable. Got it. Well, if they start finding the gene that causes balding, would love to, to edit that one out, although it may be a little late for me. But Peter, love the, love the thoughts. You're always incredibly insightful and, and clearly very pragmatic ahead of the curve and very thoughtful on how you approach the industry, but then also how you build your firm. So thank you so much for, for coming on. Always great to chat. And yeah, is there anywhere you want to drive people so that they can learn more about you and Waldenbridge? Yes, they can visit our website, waldenbridge.capital. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Peter, and to everyone else. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior's Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.